Chapter Seventeen of The Return of Alfred by Herbert George Jenkins. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Anna Simon. Chapter Seventeen. Mister Gadget pays a call. Just as P.C. Postle emerged from his fowl house to receive the complaint of the stranger with the auburn moustache, Janet entered the vicarage drawing room. A gentleman has called to see you, sir," she announced. "To see me?" queried Smith, looking up from the writing table where he was engaged in glancing through the pages of an illustrated paper. "Yes, sir. He said Mr. Willis sent him over from the Grange. He wouldn't give his name, sir." "Always a suspicious sign that," murmured Smith. "By the way, whom did he happen to ask for?" "For you, Mr. Warren." "That is to say." for mr alfred warren yes sir janet haven't i told you a thousand times that i am not mr alfred warren but mr smith yes mr warren show him in he said warily when the door once more opened smith rose to find himself facing a little ferret-faced man sandy where he was not bald and with a chin that manifested a marked inclination to retreat down his collar as he entered, he gave a swift glance round the room, his shifty little eyes blinking craftily. At the sight of Smith, an evil expression passed over his unprepossessing features. "'Mr. Alfred Warren?' he interrogated. "'Sometimes I almost wish I were,' said Smith, who was speculating as to what particular period of Alfred Warren's activities his caller represented. "'As it is, I am always disappointing people. Won't you sit down, Mr. Gadget?' of the firm of Gadget, Granson and Gadget, solicitors of New Court, London, W.C. "'And may I take it that you are the Granson?' inquired Smith gravely. "'I'm the senior partner, Mr. Grimthorpe Gadget,' he replied, with a touch of self-importance. "'Thank you,' said Smith, with the air of one who has settled an important point. "'Am I addressing Mr. Alfred Warren?' "'You are not,' smiled Smith. For a moment Mr. Gadget looked nonplussed. His face assumed an even more ferrety expression. He gazed at Smith, as if trying to read his thoughts. "'Then may I inquire who it is I have the pleasure of addressing?' "'Certainly. My name is James Smith.' Mr. Gadget glanced up at him sharply. It was obvious that the answer was unexpected. "'We are a large family, we Smiths,' said Smith, as he sank back into a chair opposite that taken by Mr. Gadget. In the London telephone directory alone there are fourteen columns of us, including twenty-four gentlemen who frankly confess to the name of James. I looked it up myself. It's a terrible inheritance, Mr. Gadget, a name such as mine. Whilst Smith was speaking, Mr. Gadget had opened a small leather attaché case he carried. Taking out a photograph, he gazed at it intently, then across at Smith, and finally back again at the photograph. "'I inquired at the Grange for Mr. Alfred Warren,' he said at length and I was told to come here. "'That would be Willis,' said Smith easily. "'You never can be sure of what Willis will be up to. If you had inquired for the Grand Lama himself, you would in all probability have been told he was here. "'Am I to take it that you maintain you are not Mr. Alfred Warren?' Mr. Gadget's eyes returned to the photograph. "'There would be no risk whatever in such an assumption.' "'Then why, may I ask, was I sent here when I inquired for Mr. Warren?' he demanded his eyes snapping venomously. "'That involves psychoanalysis and family history,' 
was the reply. The psychoanalysis being necessary to interpret Willis, and the family history to explain the disappearance of Mr. Warren some seven years ago, and the discovery of James Smith a few days since. In the village I was given to understand that Mr. Warren had returned after a long absence, and was living here. Is that correct? Which statement do you wish me to verify? inquired Smith. That you are assured of the circumstance, or that the circumstance of which you are assured is an actual fact? We're wasting time, sir, said Mr. Gadget, with a touch of asperity in his voice. The question is, are you or are you not Mr. Alfred Warren? I've just told you that my name is James Smith, was the reply. If I am James Smith, Mr. Gadget, you, as a lawyer, must realize that I cannot be Alfred Warren. May I in turn inquire why it is you are subjecting me to this cross-examination? I must first establish your identity before I can proceed, said Mr. Gadget. Then I fear you are in for a troublesome business, was the smiling reply. For the past week I have been endeavouring to do that self-same thing, but with the most miserable results. I suspect that nothing short of an act of Parliament or direct action can establish my identity, because— Because? prompted Mr. Gadget. Because I don't seem to have an identity. At least— not one about which there appears to be any unanimity of opinion. I'm a sort of stormy petrel. Wherever I go I seem to excite faction. In this peaceful little village, for instance, I've aroused the devil's own dissensions. Nothing like it has been known since the Wars of the Roses." For nearly a minute Mr. Gadget sat pondering the photograph in his hand, his eyes shifting restlessly, always avoiding Smith's steady gaze. "'Sir,' he said at length, I venture to suggest that you are deliberately adopting an attitude of verbal ambiguity, and it is my duty to warn you that such a line of defence will not in any way benefit you. And I, on my part, said Smith, with a smile that gave no indication of what was to follow, warn you, Mr. Gadget, that unless you are reasonably civil, I shall throw you out of that window into Miss Lipscomb's favourite bed of begonias. They're mostly prized plans, by the way. Mr. Gadget started back in his chair, his little eyes blinking apprehensively. He glanced furtively about him, as if in search of a line of retreat. "'That is a threat of violence, sir,' he blustered. "'An attempt to intimidate.' "'As a matter of fact, it is neither the one nor the other. It is just a prophecy. We Smiths are like that, at least those of us who are not hyphenated. It's no doubt due to our sensitiveness,' he continued, that Mr. Gadget remained silent. The least suggestion of discourtesy, and—he paused significantly. "'I'm sorry if—' began Mr. Gadget. "'Don't be sorry,' said Smith. "'Just be explicit.' He was enjoying Mr. Gadget's embarrassment, so obviously tinctured with fear. He sat blinking his eyes uncertainly, looking more ferret-like than ever. It was clear he found some difficulty in deciding his mode of procedure. Smith sat gazing at him, like a good-humoured mastiff at a small dog that has barked a challenge. "'To prevent any misunderstanding, Mr. Gadget,' continued Smith, "'I think it only right to say that I used to be regarded as a light heavyweight of some promise.' "'That, I suggest, is a covert threat of violence,' said Mr. Gadget. "'On the contrary, it is merely a little piece of biographical information that may tend to preserve the peace the king is supposed to value so much. You have rather an unfortunate manner, Mr. Gadget, 
he added, still smiling. Doubtless it is unintentional. I repeat, said Mr. Gadget at length, that if I have said anything calculated to cause you irritation or annoyance, he paused. You cannot repeat what you have not already stated, said Smith evenly. As a matter of fact, your presence causes me both. I'm sorry, began Mr. Gadget. You've just said that. Smith glanced significantly at the watch on his wrist. Don't you think you might take the plunge and tell me why you have called? I came, said Mr. Gadget, to interview the, um, gentleman who is masquer who is known here as Mr. Alfred Warren. I gathered as much from your previous remarks, was the dry retort. Smith was determined to render him no assistance. As a lawyer, you will realize that the actual expression of other people's opinions does not involve me in any liability. If you are not he who is known in this neighborhood as Mr. Alfred Warren, then where can I find the gentleman in question? Smith shrugged his shoulders with the air of one who acknowledges that the problem is beyond him. Mr. Um, Smith, I have decided, for the purpose of my visit, to assume that you are the gentleman who has been identified in this neighborhood as Mr. Alfred Warren. Mr. Gadget paused and glanced swiftly at Smith, who, however, evinced no emotion. It is, therefore, he continued, with more assurance in his voice, it is, therefore, my duty to inform you that some years ago, before going um, abroad, the real Mr. Alfred Warren placed his affairs in the hands of my firm, with instructions to take such steps as we may deem necessary to protect his interests and reputation. Do I make myself clear? Abundantly. Have you anything to say? Mr. Gadget's former assurance of manner was returning to him. I was wondering, said Smith quietly, if that little bit about protecting his reputation was your idea or his. You must understand, Mr. Smith, that, presuming I am right in my assumption that you are he who is generally accepted as Mr. Alfred Warren, you are running a very considerable risk. We all run risks, Mr. Gadget, said Smith evenly. The world is full of them. That is why we buy newspapers, to insure against the mere risk of living. Quite recently I played cricket in flannel reach-me-downs. That is not relevant to the matter under discussion. On the contrary, it is peculiarly relevant. You think of my risks, I think of yours. I should hate to see you take a header into that begonia bed. Smith significantly felt the biceps of his left arm. Mr. Gadget rose and performed a strategic movement that placed the chair on which he had been sitting between him and Smith. "'We do not wish to be unduly precipitate in any action we take,' he said over the back of the chair. "'I command your wisdom,' was the dry rejoinder. "'It is that fact which accounts for my presence here to-day,' continued Mr. Gadget. Smith nodded. "'I have it in my power to prove that you are not Mr. Warren,' announced Mr. Gadget with the air of a man who is playing a trump card. "'Mr. Gadget,' said Smith impressively, "'you are the man I have been looking for. If you can do as you say, then the moving of mountains is a mere bagatelle.' "'Have you, Mr. Um, Smith, anything to say before I take my departure?' "'Nothing,' said Smith, glancing once more at his wristwatch. "'Except to thank you for calling,' he added. 
"'In the light of anything that may subsequently transpire,' continued Mr. Gadget, as he backed towards the door, "'you will recall that I approached you with a view to hearing any explanation you might have to make, and, um, see if a satisfactory settlement could be arrived at.' "'I most certainly shall.' "'I have sent two letters to Mr. Alfred Warren at the Grange. Did you receive them?' "'Mr. Warren has not authorized me to deal with his correspondence.' "'I take it,' began Mr. Gadget. "'Don't,' said Smith. "'It's safer.' "'I'm afraid we're not progressing,' said Mr. Gadget, who had apparently forgotten his intention of terminating the interview. "'I quite agree with you.' "'You will uh, pardon me, Mr. Smith.' If I say that you are now faced with a matter requiring the most careful and well-considered judgment, I will add that I apologize for any offence I may unwittingly have caused, and—he paused. Enough, Mr. Gadget, said Smith. I think you may now safely resume your chair. Acting on the hint, Mr. Gadget slid round the chair with obvious relief. It has come to our knowledge, Mr. Uh, Smith. Smith, without the error, sounds better said Smith evenly. "'That you recently threatened a gentleman with violence,' continued Mr. Gadget. "'You mean Mr. Bluggs,' suggested Smith. The process of sweetening the memory of the absent Alfred promised to be more interesting than it at first appeared likely. "'I refer to Mr. Jonathan Bluggs, and I feel I ought to inform you that such threats are calculated to prejudice your case. It was—' "'A holly-bush,' came the smiling interruption. You see, we were some way from the begonia bed. Besides, he was peculiarly offensive. You realize, of course, that it is within Mr. Bluggs's power to have you bound over, said Mr. Gadget. He gave Smith the impression of one talking to gain time, apparently with a view to deciding his line of action. As Smith made no comment, he turned once more to the likeness he still held in his hand. The likeness is certainly very remarkable, he said. "'Physically, it is almost uncanny,' remarked Smith dryly. Mr. Gadget winced a little. He was still obviously nervous, and Smith realized that he desired to say something which he found it difficult to frame in words. "'Were you—' he began, then paused. "'Was I—' interrogated Smith with polite indifference. "'You have been at Little Bilstead for—for several days?' "'This is the eighth to be exact, was the rejoinder. Have you, during that time, um, met with any... He paused again. I mean, have you... Has your stay been a pleasant one? Eminently, said Smith, with a smile. At first I was regarded a little coldly, except at the Grange, where Willis spent much of his time in following me about with a decanter. And outside the Grange? inquired Mr. Gadget hastily. Fair to medium. I made friends with the vicar, have been denounced by a peppery old colonel, managed to invest the dislike of a pretty girl, knocked up one short of the century at cricket, and—well, that's about all so far. "'Will you permit me to put a few questions to you, Mr. Um, Smith?' "'With pleasure,' said Smith, amused at the change in Mr. Gadget's tone. "'By the way, you've already put two or three. "'Uh, have you any reason to believe—' began Mr. Gadget. He paused. Then, as if deciding upon another course of action, he said, "'I'll be quite frank with you, Mr. Smith.' This time he got the name without the preliminary error. "'Frankness is always refreshing.' 
There was a short pause. From the ferrety snapping of Mr. Gadgett's eyes, Smith realized that he was about to spring his mine. He had clearly been working up to something dramatic. "'Are you aware, Mr. Smith,' he began, emphasizing the name, "'that there is a warrant out for the arrest of Mr. Warren?' "'The deuce there is!' cried Smith, startled in spite of himself, and sitting up straight in his chair. This was an aspect of the sweetening process he had not bargained for. Mr. Gadget displayed the yellowness of two particularly evil-looking canines. His mine was a success. "'It was issued six years ago,' he said, "'and, as I happen to know, it has never been withdrawn.' "'And why do you come to tell me this?' inquired Smith, a stern look coming into his eyes. "'I, ah, uh, we may possibly be of assistance to you.' was the fluid rejoinder. In our professional capacity, he added. And why was the warrant issued? In connection with the death of a girl named Thurkettle. Before she died she made a statement, he added, with a leer. I think you have given me sufficient data to be going on with, said Smith, rising. There was a whiteness at the corners of his set mouth that caused Mr. Gadget some anxiety. "'I think that is all I need trouble you with at present,' he said as he rose, having first stowed away the photograph in his case. "'We do not propose to take action for a week or ten days,' he added. "'I shall not forget.' "'You have our address,' said Mr. Gadget, significantly. "'I have,' said Smith. "'I am glad you came.' "'Thank you, Mr. Smith,' and Mr. Gadget made a repulsive movement with his dust-coloured lips which his intimates would have recognized as a smile. So am I. Because, said Smith quietly, you are the first blackmailer I have ever met. Mr. Gadget's jaw fell. For a moment he gazed at Smith, fear in his eyes. That is, he stopped suddenly and began to back nervously towards the door. There was something in Smith's look that suggested Miss Lipscombe's bed of begonias. "'You know Alfred Warren to be dead.' It was a shot at a venture, but in the apprehensive look in Mr. Gadget's turbid eyes Smith thought he saw a confirmation of his words. The next moment Mr. Gadget had slid round the door and disappeared. "'So that was why A. W. bolted,' murmured Smith, as he stepped out from the French windows onto the lawn. There was something about the moral atmosphere of Mr. Gadget that made fresh air essential.' He turned and walked slowly down the drive, his face grave. This process of sweetening the memory of the absent Alfred seemed likely to involve him in serious complications. It was not pleasant to contemplate arrest, but on such a charge it was intolerable. He could prove his innocence of the crime and of being Alfred. Still, there was all the unpleasantness and the scandal. It was obvious that the unspeakable gadget was out for blackmail, disguised as some form of professional service. He had heard of such solicitors, but had never believed they really existed. Such forms of animal life ought to be trodden on, he decided. Was Alfred Warren alive or dead? That was the question. The startled look in Gadget's eyes, coupled with the hurried nature of his departure, certainly looked suspicious. But suspicion was not proof. Then how had he got to know about Blugs? Was he in league with that gold-toothed abomination? Taken all round, he was in the very... He stopped suddenly at the sound of a cry, something between a yelp and a scream, which appeared to come from somewhere in the neighbourhood of the vicarage gates. 
Hurrying along the drive, he passed out into the road, just as another yelp broke the drowsy stillness of the summer afternoon. This time it developed into a howl. Smith gazed along the road in the direction of the Grange. As far as the eye could reach, there was no spot or blemish upon its ribboned whiteness. Obviously the drama was being enacted in the opposite direction, where the road took a sharp turn towards the village. Running the few steps necessary to gain a view round the bend, Smith was met by a sight and sound that brought him once more to a standstill. There, in the middle of the road, lay Mr. Gadget. At least, he judged it to be Mr. Gadget. The hat and attaché case that lay a few yards off were certainly his. Mr. Gadget himself seemed to be somewhere beneath a body infinitely larger than his own, encased in a startling scheme of brown and white checks. Mr. Gadget appeared to be engaged in screaming for mercy, invoking the aid alike of God and man, whilst his thin legs worked like flails. It was obvious that Mr. Gadget was getting it in the neck. Hastening forward, Smith seized a handful of the checked material and hauled with all his might. There was a gasping sound from the upper part of the mound, and, a moment later, a foxy little figure wriggled from beneath the mountain of checks. It was indeed Mr. Gadget, and a very agile Mr. Gadget. Before Smith quite realized what was happening, he had gathered up his hat and case, and was legging it down the road towards the village, as if the Inquisition itself were after him. Turning to the brown and white-checked assailant, whose color he had been grasping, Smith, by a movement of his wrist, swung him round. "'Peters!' he released his hold, and stood gazing at the man in sheer bewilderment. "'What the devil does this mean?' he demanded, his eyes still upon the perspiring face from which an auburn moustache stood out with astonishing suddenness. "'I'm taking a holiday, sir,' was the reply of the man whom Eric had pinked, and Peters proceeded to draw a large bandana handkerchief from his pocket and mop his streaming forehead. He was a big man, and unaccustomed to any form of violent exercise. "'And is this your idea of a holiday?' demanded Smith, "'battering the life out of a man half your own size?' "'That was private gadget, sir,' he said, as calm as if in his own pantry. "'That, Peters,' said Smith severely, "'is Mr. Grimthorpe Gadget, of Gadget Grandson and Gadget, solicitors of New Court, London, W.C., as he has just informed me.' "'What the devil are you doing?' In what appeared to be one movement, Peters had returned the handkerchief to his pocket, produced a notebook, and was apparently engaged in making a note of something. "'I'm taking down the address, sir,' he said, without raising his eyes from the page. "'Why?' "'It will be useful, sir.' "'The devil it will!' cried Smith. "'How?' "'Private Gadget, deserted from our regiment one night, when out on patrol, sir, in the final advance.' continued Peters. And the Huns, the Germans, sir, he corrected himself, surprised a working party and killed six men. The swine! The words broke from between Smith's clenched teeth, and he was not thinking of the Huns. My company commander ordered me, if ever I caught him, to, to smash his face in. I was doing it when you interrupted me, sir, he added. Peters, said Smith gravely, I owe you an apology. Thank you, sir. By the look of what he took away with him, however, you seem to have achieved your mission, he added dryly. Peters looked doubtful. It was evident that, in his code of ethics, a man with a smashed face ought not to be able to run away. But what the devil do you mean by turning up here? Smith demanded, suddenly recalling the strangeness of the encounter. 
I was in pursuit of a boy, sir. Smith stared at him. You don't happen to have turned Bolshevist, I suppose? he inquired. He assaulted me with a catapult, said Peters, with expressionless face. I don't wonder at it, in that get-up, smiled Smith, venturing a guess at the identity of the boy. It's like a musical comedy. The boy escaped, sir, continued Peters. It was then that I saw Private Gadget, and— Proceeded to smash his face, suggested Smith, as Peters paused. But that does not account for your turning up here in this fashion, and in those extraordinary clothes. I developed engine trouble, sir, my motorcycle, sir, he added. You invariably do. I think, sir, I mentioned that I was going to Norfolk because— Your old bus wouldn't climb hills, broke in Smith with a smile. I've certainly had a considerable amount of trouble with my motorcycle, agreed Peters. I think it must be the petrol. The avoir du poids, you mean? Sir, interrogated Peters. When you put about fifteen stone on a broken-winded motorbike like yours, Peters, and then expect it to take a hill at a canter, you're asking for trouble. Yes, sir, said Peters, dutifully. Incidentally, Peters, I am in the very deuce of a hole, Smith continued. I've not only been written off as a bad death by my uncle, but I've also been proclaimed the returned prodigal of little Bilsett, and it's the very devil. Yes, sir, said Peters his face immobile as the Houses of Parliament. But I can't tell you now. There isn't time. I feel I ought to inform you, sir, that Sir John has written to me. Written to you? Yes, sir. Then how the devil did he know? Soon after I started, I developed engine. Oh, damn your engine trouble, Peters. Let us take it for granted. "'Certainly, sir,' said Peters, in his best professional manner. "'I returned to London for certain repairs, and I took the opportunity of calling at the flat, sir, where I found a number of letters.' "'And some bills?' suggested Smith. "'A large proportion of the correspondents bore evidence of having come from tradesmen,' admitted Peters. "'There was also a letter from Sir John asking for your address, sir. "'I hope you wrote and told him I'd gone to the devil.' No, sir. I informed him that you had entered upon a new life of usefulness. A new life of what? he demanded. I mentioned, sir, that you hoped by industry and application, and attention to detail, that you would merit— You've been reading some infernal tradesman's circular, Peters. What the deuce do you mean by writing such utter balderdash to Sir John? "'I thought it would probably appeal to him, sir,' said Peters, as devoid of expression as a barrel piano. "'If I may say so, Sir John is very much attached to you, sir.' "'Peters, you're indulging what the Americans call sop-stuff. You've been reading The Lamplighter, or A Peep Behind the Scenes. In the idiom of the modern flapper, you're getting soppy.' "'I'm sorry, sir.' You need not be, Peters. It's an emotional state largely due to films. Did my uncle say what he wanted me for? I think, sir, he found his heart softening. Like your brains, Peters, smiled Smith. What are your plans now? For the moment, sir, I have no plans. I have to return to Norwich to get a new magneto. I think that is the cause of the trouble I have with the engine. 
"'You can do better,' said Smith, with sudden inspiration. "'You can go to town and get me some clothes.' "'Yes, sir. "'You know what you packed. "'I've wrecked the raincoat in climbing a gate, "'and the suit I wore has ceased to be a suit "'and is merely a study in exposure. "'When you get back, come up to the vicarage "'and ask for the keys of the church, "'then we can arrange to smuggle the things in.' "'Yes, sir,' said Peters, "'as if he were being asked for a whisky and soda. "'Now you'd better slip off,' said Smith. "'It won't do for us to be seen together.' "'No, sir.' said Peters, vaguely. "'Great Gulliver!' Smith cried suddenly. "'Why, Peters, you're the deus ex machina of this adventure.' "'Am I, sir?' "'You most certainly are,' he assured him. "'You'll have to follow up this gadget fellow,' he paused, to see the effect of the announcement. "'That was my intention, sir,' said Peters. "'The deuce it was!' "'Yes, sir.' "'And you'll exert such influence as you possess with ex-private gadget?' continued Smith, to extract from him full particulars, documentary or otherwise, as to the death or present whereabouts of one Alfred Warren of the Grange, Little Bilstead. That's where we now are. Very good, sir. And Peters once more drew forth his notebook. If he's difficult, suggest the war office, and, failing that, hint at publishing the story of his desertion. Very good, sir repeated Peters, as he replaced the pencil in the slot at the back of his notebook and returned it to his pocket, a baleful look in his prominent eyes. "'And Peters?' "'Yes, sir.' "'After you have obtained the information I require, you can then get to work upon his face.' "'Thank you, sir. Will that be all, sir?' "'By the way, how long will it take you to get to German Street and back?' he inquired casually. "'I think, sir, I ought to do it in a week,' said Peters gravely. "'If the engine trouble doesn't get worse, sir.'" End of chapter 17